a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is the story of Star Wars. You can read along with me in your book. O is for Obi-Wan Kenobi. All rebel fighters met at fleet headquarters to plan their attack. Princess Leia addressed them. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. Hello, I am C-3PO, and you are about to listen to the story of Star Wars. Another chapter is here. Welcome to Don't Burn the Sacred Text. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I am here with my co-host. She is the one person who could singly, single-handedly bring Iram and Arano together. It's Lindsay. Oh, hello. You don't need That's quite any. a feat, but you know what? I think I'd I think I'd be up to it. I don't know if I could do it, but I think I'd be up to it. You you I I believe in you. I have faith in you and your force abilities. Uh guys, tonight <laughs> we are going to be talking about the High Republic Cataclysm, which is the last adult novel in uh phase two of the High Republic. So that's gonna be a lot of fun. Um I have actually, Lindsay, been rereading phase one as I'm reading phase two, which I think if you have the opportunity to do, like I know it's a lot of reading, but that's the way to do it because there are things in phase one that are set up in phase two, which is such a weird thing to say, but there's so many threads. It's like little things where you're like, wow, why would they even think about this? But they brought it around. And uh, so I'm really excited to talk about and oh, like, which is so cool too, because for the phase one, also it's so hard getting phase and waves, right? Yeah. Because the fact that you have to deal with like, oh, it's wave one of phase two. But we kept, we kept saying during phase one that for as much as we loved it, you kind of have to hold off the judgment until phase two and phase three comes out. But yeah. now being able to say to your point, yeah, Phase one is even better with this context and seeing what's been set up here. And I hope phase three does the same for both of these. Um, But it's, it's nice starting to see that pay off because we both really did want to hold a lot of judgment until we see the final, final verdict. Right. And, but it's even little things, you know, which is the part that amazes me. Like I know they had the big, sweeping ideas of what they wanted to cover but i mean this is like the minorest of spoilers but in uh fallen star marcion marcion roe gets the enforcer droids and it just casually mentions how they're they've been outlawed for decades and have been hard to find especially in the quantity that he wants them and you go back to battle of Jeddah, and you're like that's why they were outlawed and it's like they don't even need also they don't even gives, mention it gives my little rise of skywalker heart hope that we'll find out the sith language and why that was not allowed to even be translated by droids and stuff like that so so anytime you can start to fill in these blanks in these stories always plus yeah but it's just i mean it's so cool because if you just casually, you know, had enforcer droids and you didn't mention that they got outlawed decades ago, it's the little details like that. So yeah. if you get the chance, and I think we're going to have a little bit of a breather now that um, we have Cataclysm, we have Path of Vengeance, and I don't think we get another High Republic book until November, 
is when phase three will start um, other than comics. And, and I think there's a manga coming out and stuff like that. So if you get the chance and you're listening to this and you've read or listened to to phase two now, uh, definitely go and and reread or re-listen to phase one. But before we actually get into our discussion, what we like to do here on Don't Burn the Sacred Text is give a rating for the book and then we will discuss it a little while and afterwards we will give an updated rating and see if we swayed each other one way or another so Lindsay, for you out of five what do you rank cataclysm this one is going to get a four out of five from me same same uh i think this was a really solid book so for you what are kind of the key points that made it a, a four out of five so Lydia Kang, if I'm not mistaken, this is her first venture into Star Wars. She has a story in, I believe, The Empire Strikes Back. One of the, okay, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which like, we've kind of seen as a trial run for a lot of authors, you know, see how they do the short have, story. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this is one where I'm glad she passed the trial because um, I was really amazed at her ability to jump in at the end of this and take all of these already established characters and put them into this really compelling story with a beautiful act structure where every single, not just chapter, but, but every act, every arc of every story, really the tension just builds and builds and builds while still deepening these characters. But for me, the biggest point, other than that building tension, other than how strong the, this writer is, I think it's so cool to have this concept where we're seeing a story that takes place immediately after what we thought was already the event. And what I mean mm. is the Battle of Jeddah. Because you know from our discussions and anyone who knows from listening to, we actually had to do a two-parter for that story. Um we, we love that story. And it was so big and so grand and, and so spectacular that, yeah, it seems like that should be the defining event of phase two. But instead, we now have this other story that takes place immediately after where we can not only see the incredible impact of those events, but it somehow gets more tense and more actiony and and more conflict but what a cool con- cool idea to just say hey look i'm going to take this other major event and show the direct impacts of it because even if it wasn't this action pack thing i think it's just a nice idea to say all right here's here's the the event here's the cataclyst if you will and and here's everything that happens after it and it's still an important story to tell yeah, and I mean, that's part of the the benefit of starting it, you know, right after. It's like Last Jedi starting right after The Force Awakens. You don't have to fill in the blanks about what the consequences of The Force Awakens were. And, and opinions aside on whether you like the movies or not, uh, that's just the nature of telling stories in that style. And it's interesting to me that we kind of in each phase, we have a major event, we have the great disaster. uh, And then, to a certain extent, the the uh, end of Starlight Beacon in phase one, but the great disaster is kind of the one that kicks everything off. And it was interesting that 
you have this Aram Erno war uh, going on in Convergence, and a little bit it, it alludes to it, I think, in in Path of Deceit. But you don't have a major event kicking off uh, phase two. You have the major event that like shifts everything in the middle because that's where uh, you start to see the path go in a different direction. You see the Jedi start to behave differently. Uh, you you see the planets of Irem and Erno uh, obviously behaving differently. And for me, this book was a, a really satisfying conclusion to that feud. Um, it it seemed a plausible way for them to to bring them together um i one of my things in convergence that i really liked was being able to have um the the essentially prince and princess of their worlds are are who are uniting um the planets together and i I liked Mm -hmm. that that wasn't easy but i also like that battle of Jeddah wasn't like a waste of convergence and what i mean by that is in convergence we get uh, Ziri and, and Fantu, and they are, you know, reuniting to, to end this war and everything. And they, you know, face all these trials and everything like that. But it finally seems like things are going to go right. Then you get to Battle of Jeddah, and it's all gone. And it would have been really easy to just go, especially for Lydia Kang writing this book, uh, and it not being uh, Zoraida Cordova, who would, would have been continuing her own story. It would have been very, very easy to go in a completely different direction um, and really kind of just say, well, what happened in Convergence wasn't really that important. And instead, and this is to me the the beauty of this book, like you said, Lydia Kang does a great job with the character arcs being defined and developed. Um, and, and these two books go together, but also Cataclysm develops the characters on their own, which to me... Yeah. You got to think about the timeline that these people are creating this. She's not she doesn't get the full release unedited version or fully edited version of Convergence while she's right before she writes Cataclysm. Like they're working in tandem on these books. The release schedules are so close together. So to have such a grasp of the characters and to not have them almost be imitations of the characters, which I think if you have a series of books, it can be really easy to have uh, the sequels become an imitation of the character that you met in the first book or uh, too much of a deviation. Instead, everything actually you get more invested in. Because um, I talked about in, in Convergence, one of the things that I wasn't a big fan of was Gelena Tai. I thought she was kind of milquetoast and bland. And here, I'm not going to say she's my favorite, you know, Jedi of all time, but I definitely liked her a little bit more. And I appreciate Convergence now, where she is kind of a blank slate uh, Jedi for us to relate to and to insert ourselves into in a way. So that way, when uh, Axel Greylark is betraying her over and over again, we feel it on a more visceral level. So I actually want to go on a little bit of a tangent too from not so much the betrayal, but what you were saying before about the, this timeline being set up and the great thing about cataclysm isn't just that it sets up the timeline for phase one and presumably phase three. If you think about it, I think this not only mirrors not mirrors, but it's 
it's a very small scale of what we're going to say, but it sets up the events that I'm expecting to happen. And my, my little conspiracy theory brain is already like, oh, is this where certain things start to come to play and start to come to fruition? Because in Cataclysm, we really get to see after the Battle of Jeddah how many people, it is said over and over and over again in this book, how many people actually blame the Jedi for the Battle of Jeddah, for all of those casualties, and for failing this this peace treaty. They blame the Jedi. And I think we're going to start to see this in the future when we're talking about, you know, how did the Sith come back into the pow- into power and what were they doing in the shadows? I think this is kind of the starting point for how they start to manipulate the galaxy's perception of, hey, look, is are the Jedi always good? Are they always doing what's best for every single person in the galaxy? Or are they fallible? Are they making mistakes? Are they self-motivated? And I think this story in particular not only comes into play for the High Republic, but we're going to start seeing this in little, little, little tiny, tiny aspects start to ripple into the grander story. I absolutely think so. I I don't want like a, a last scene in the High Republic phase three to be like Plagueis, you know, watching something yeah, on his computer yeah. or whatever. I don't want anything that direct. I don't think they're going to do anything like that. Um, but I can definitely you put, see. You put it out there now. That's exactly how it's going to end. Yeah. Oh, God, please no. Uh, because I, I feel like that just like kind of invalidates everything you had, you've done over these past what four years or whatever it's been that we've had the High Republic. But anyways, so in Phase One, you know we have the Jedi at their their pinnacle, and things are are good with them in terms of their relationship to, to the galaxy as a whole. And the Nile obviously throw that for a loop, and what we start to see is them become more entrenched in the Republic with uh, Chancellor So basically saying, you guys have all the resources you need, go defeat the Nile, right? And they essentially become this uh, hand of justice for the Republic, right? And it's not saying that they're one and the same, like we essentially get them being a, a faction of the Republic in the prequels, but it's saying we're getting closer to that and the line is getting a lot blurrier. And here in uh, phase two, we start to see, like you said, that descent against the Jedi. So the question becomes, where is it in the time of, of phase one? And I think it's dormant for a particular reason, because I think in phase three, what's going to happen is it's going to circle back and their failures with defeating the Nile uh, time and time over and telling the galaxy everything's okay and then it's not okay is going to build that distrust for the galaxy. And then they're going to look back and go, wait a minute, this has happened before. So this is not a a happenstance of this one particular group yeah. was able to get to them, but they this happened before. And so why are we trusting the Jedi? And that will eventually make the propaganda campaign that Palpatine had a little bit easier because it becomes a cultural norm to question the Jedi as they get more power. That's such a good point. And actually I'm, I'm so happy you brought it up too, because 
I wanted to pick your brain a little bit on why it's only four out of five stars for you. Because for me, that missing star is actually, and this is where I have room to be swayed, maybe up to a five. Um, but I'm not sure how much I love that it took all these different groups to come together to defeat this one other group, right? Like we have the Jedi mm-hmm. coming in with, with the Republic and all these other groups coming in to say, we have to crush the, the path of the open hand. And it almost gives so much credence to the path, but does it potentially weaken the Jedi and does it potentially weaken the Republic and how much they're really able to accomplish if this small group that no one knew about is able to cause such chaos. And then furthermore, the Nile seems so much larger and so much more organized and, and so much more ruthless. And yet they're not as big of an issue. So my, my one holdup is, Hey, look, there's, there's this believability factor, right? There's a sense of reason of, are we maybe overreacting in, in cataclysm? Is this too much manpower to defeat this one potential uprising? So is that something that worked for you? Because I love your idea of, hey, look, this is maybe why the Jedi are going to be seen as unsuccessful in the future. But is that something that raised any alarms for you? And if not, what is kind of your missing star for this? So it it's not... That's not the reason that my my uh, fifth star is missing. I'll get to that in just a little bit. I think, if anything, the the damage in in regards of how that was developed with the path of the open hand growing comes down to um, the amount of time that you had spent with them, and because uh, convergence didn't really spend a lot of time with the path of the open hand, um, and in Battle of Jeddah you get some stuff with the mother and the herald and things and, and their actions, but you don't get a lot of time in their heads and, and you don't get basically uh, much of Marta Rowe or any of the, those players like that in battle of Jeddah. Um, so a lot of weight is put on, on the YA novels in terms of developing those characters. And so I think the, the impression we're supposed to get is in Path of Deceit, they are smaller and then they've grown and expanded by the time we get to Cataclysm and Path of Vengeance. And I'm still finishing Path of Vengeance, so I'm not going to bring that into consideration here. But if the Path of the Open Hand has grown and expanded, I think it makes sense because of a couple reasons. One... Those who do wrong are, they don't have a line that they're not willing to cross. And so it usually takes less of them to cause such chaos. Um, You know, we see it with Palpatine. There's no line that Palpatine won't cross other than something that will take his own power away. And he's able to manipulate the entire galaxy, you know, with a couple people at his side. And so to me, it's plausible. We talked about how the mother is a great villain in the steed of Palpatine, even though she's a different kind of villain than Palpatine. And I think that still holds. I also think you have to consider the cult aspect of it and the lengths to which cultists are willing to go to protect Mm. their cult. You know, we've seen this time and again, Waco comes to mind for me, particularly of what they were willing to sacrifice and the damage that they were able to 
inflict while surrounded by multiple, you know, uh, uh, federal bureaus and military and everything like that. And it took uh, a lot of them dying and a lot of, of forces from, we'll say, the, the, the side of good, for lack of a better term, to be able to, to end that conflict. Because there were lines that we were not willing to cross, which we you know, we shouldn't be if we're going to, you know, consider ourselves people of, of goodness and justice. And so I think you have that in regards of the Jedi, like the High Republic has really emphasized how they don't want to kill anybody full stop. And so I think, especially with the path of the open hand, it happens so quickly for the Jedi, but it hasn't happened quickly for the path of the open hand. I think the mother has been building this and, and seeding this uh, rebellion, if you want to call it that, for a really long time. And so by the time these players get on the field, like they are riled up and ready to go. And so you have a situation where to, to continue on with that sports analogy, like if you have a football team full of, of, grown men who have been training for this since they were five years old. And then you throw, you know, uh, some people who had athletic skill, but kind of just, you know, casually play the game or whatever. You, it doesn't matter if you're playing, you know, 22 to 11, you're gonna, you're gonna lose. Like the people who are bigger, faster, stronger, and more motivated are going to win. And in this instance, I think that goes down to, uh, the path of the open hand. Aram and Arano are, they've depleted each other's resources. The Jedi have, uh, you know, these these serious lines that they will not cross. Um, and so that makes it more difficult to win. It, it makes it, it makes the victory more satisfying. It makes it more appropriate. It makes it more just and right, but it does make it harder. You know, it's a lot easier to to do wrong than it is to do right and, and i think that applies to the forces that they have as well um so did that answer your first question i know that was kind of a long way my first question yes and potentially even in a way that who knows might have swayed me one way or another okay. um no it definitely definitely answered for for me though that your second question was about the the not having a fifth star for me that comes down to uh, phase two I don't like in phase one, you they're not particularly standalone novels. You could read them one and, you know, just one and done and get some aspects of the story. But you really do have to read the trilogy of adult novels to um, get everything. And then the the YAs and the junior readers kind of enhance side stories. Um, but essentially you only have this one or these three books that you absolutely have to, to read in phase two, you kind of have to read it and listen to it all in terms of the, yeah. both of the YAs convergence and cataclysm and the battle of Jeddah. And so I have the caveat of path of vengeance. Uh, I, I haven't finished that yet. My not having a fifth star comes down to the legwork that you have to do to be able to keep up with this part of the story, um, which is a knock for me, not because I don't want to do it, but because of how they sold the High Republic. And I think that okay. needs to be taken into consideration. There needs to be some accountability there in terms of don't tell us this 
is A and then give us B, you know? Um, yeah. And also uh, just the fact that I didn't like, and this is an expectation thing, but I was expecting more direct, obvious uh, reasons and, and formation of the Nile. Like I really was hoping okay. the end of phase one, or excuse me, phase two would be here are the Nile. And again, I haven't read Path of Vengeance. I'm hoping that that, uh, you know, ends that conflict for me because then that would probably move this up a little bit. I don't know if it would move it okay. to five out of five, but that's kind of a big hang up for me. No, that's a, that's a solid point because you can start to see some connections, but really mostly in the name row, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's really the tightest connection that we have. And it's, it's, I see, I see your point to wanting to lead into the Nile. Um, it's solid. And, and even the whole having to keep up, um, I'm pretty good with remembering like names and everything and, and who was in what, but there were quite a few times where I had to be like, wait, hold on. Who's this? Where do I know them from? And like, I wanted, um, the best way I can think to explain this is I watch, um, Yellowstone and I also watch 1883 and 1923 and all of those shows are connected and all of those people in those shows are somehow related but it's really hard to remember okay wait where do i know this person from and who are they related to and who's their direct descendant and and when were they a kid in some other show but you can find really easy like family trees online mm -hmm for who everyone is and what they're in and who they're related to. And I feel like I just need that for the high Republic phase two. Uh, in a way, I, I think something that's been a big hang up for me. And I talked about this with convergence is the names Irem and Erno are really hard to separate. Which yeah. planet is which, um, especially when you essentially start with, them trying to unite, right? So you don't have like a book about Irem and a book about Erino where you get time to kind of uh, know their planets and their systems individually. So that part made it a little bit challenging, um, but no more so than it did for Convergence. I think for me, there's this thing in, in sequential stories where you, you have to add on characters every single sub subsequent story, which I just don't really think is, is actually necessary. I think that, you know, there are times, you know, when you can do it for something outside of the story, like bringing in uh, uh, Lando in case Harrison Ford doesn't resign for Return of the Jedi. But just in the last book of a phase to bring in this new character of Beno and or Benet or however you, you want to pronounce it, um, that for me, like, I was like, mm, he feels too much like a villain of the week. And I would have liked to see him have more development. So that was a knock for me of like, I liked his character. I liked how he was utilized. I love the, the 
uh, Chylobacter, you know, trying to manipulate them, uh, Aram back into the war. Um, I really enjoyed seeing him once he kind of went a uh, little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs there at the end and started uh, change the path of the open hand to the path of the closed fist. <laughs> closed fist. Like, I just, I loved that. Like, he was a... I'm not gonna say he's my favorite villain of all time or anything like that, but he's a perfectly serviceable, believable villain for this story. But I would have liked to see him uh, start out. You know, you talk about all this history with Axel and everything, and it's like knowing what that how they do High Republic. I know, and you know, that they had this character in mind by the time yeah. they started Convergence. So why not have him a little bit more? Uh, a part of the story because what they did with him, I really liked. And, uh, the, he is a, an, an avatar for the masses of the, the path of the open hand. And then later the path of the closed fist to show that the mother has so craftily sunk her teeth into their beliefs that she is now their belief. She is who they believe in. And so, we talked a little bit in uh, the path of deceit of like what makes a cult, and you brought the definition of uh, you know a cult is is basically it dies with its leader. It doesn't continue on for further generations. And we know from path of deceit that the path of the open hand had a leader before the mother arrived. And so one thing I thought Cataclysm did amazingly well, and Bono was kind of the like I said the avatar for this was showing how this path of the open hand and then later path of the closed fist is not the same path of the open hand that would have been started before. So it is, in the most technical of terms, I think we can safely say now that it is a cult, like it's been talked about as a cult, but I think if we want to be literal about it, we can now say that because this is a completely different beast than what we saw at the the beginning of Path of Deceit and the beliefs that, uh, you know, Marta had and we talked about how yeah their beliefs were flawed but it was understandable about why they might think that here there's there's no justification for the level of vitriol and the uh level of violence and and just we, we see straight up murder of four sensitives with the leveler that they are willing to to do there is no means in which your your religious beliefs can justify that kind of of behavior no, that's that's solid. And again, it kind of goes back to uh, the original point of having to hold out judgment on certain things until we see how other things play out. Um, what I kind of took away from Bono as well, just as a character, other than the thing that I as well just love what they did with like the, the closed fist and hey, let's have this grow and let's have this evolve and, and let's have these more somehow more extreme extremists. Um, it reminded me very much of the Nexium cult and all of these subgroups in that. Um, but I thought he was a great way to get exposition across on why Axel is so important and the role that he played in the story. Mm-hmm. I think you kind of need to have that, that lesser character to be able to show why he was so important to both sides. Well, and to get him to believe in the cause, you know, Um, Mm. there's a quote 
Beno is talking to to Axel about the mother and and kind of what how he needs to behave in order to to get in her good graces, if you will. Uh, he says, you have to be smart, useful in every way. I've learned to become every person the mother needs me to be. A farmer, a thief, a spy, a negotiator, a helpless transporter, victimized by pirates, a survivor. And like, we've seen Axel through Convergence and then into Cataclysm try to be so many different things, right? He tries to be something... Uh, with his mother, he tries to be something for the mother. He tries to be something else for Gela, and like now we see something else for Beno. And it's pretty clear that he has no real understanding of who he is. Uh, he knows a lot, I think, of who he doesn't want to be, but he pushes the blame off on other people uh, for why he isn't who he should be. And so it makes it for me more believable that this kid who grew up the son of, of the one of the chancellors would start to actually not just, you know, get away with stuff and use the cult as a means to an end, but start to actually dedicate himself to the mother's cause because he sees this skill, if you will, that he has developed over the years unintentionally is something that can serve the mother. And and this book is is really emphasizes her selfishness and selfishness and emotional manipulation. Uh, she even says at one time, she says, I am the path, which is a total, I am the Senate moment, which I loved. Um, but so you, you get more of that cult of personality and you see how somebody who is lost and broken like Axel would succumb to, to what she has to offer because he doesn't, He's, he's tried to mask in so many different ways to be so many different people. And now that skill is actually going to serve him. And that's going to look, com you know, compelling for him to, to jump on board. Yeah, no, it's, it's not that he's like a, a bad character. I kind of do wish we got more with him as time went on. Um, but I think to Lydia Kang's credit, for all the points mentioned, she really did a great job with someone who, like you said, is the villain of the week, right? And and could really easily be dismissed as just, okay, he's just here to fill in some pages. I think she did a really nice job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I loved what she did with him. And I mean, I also, I like that they didn't try to make Axel sympathetic. Um, it's understandable, but it's not like you feel bad for him and the choices that he's made, um, especially with with his his mother, uh, Chancellor Greylark, uh, basically saying like, no, he needs to stay in prison. Um, I, I loved that. Um, I got very Chancellor So vibes out of it. Like I was like, yeah, she would totally she would do what's best for her kid, but she would also make them deal with the consequences. So there's yeah. that one moment when uh, when Axel sends the message to to Chancellor Greylark asking her to come and speak with the mother. And I'm reading that, and I, I want to get what your reaction was to it. But I was reading that and read the message, and I was like, well, all she has to do is just give up her chancellorship, but they'll never do that. And you flip the page, and it's like, oh, shit, she gave up her chancellorship. Like, yeah. I did not actually think they would do that. So yeah. what was your kind of reaction to that moment? Because that was, that was a a baller move by the chancellor of the Republic. I mean, to me, it was believable for the story because, and you know, 
it's so funny because I think either outcome would have been believable for me mm-hmm. because we saw her really struggle with it. And when I think a character starts to really struggle with something, it leaves so many options open. And granted, it's not like she's, you know, the main character and we could spend so much time with her and, and seeing how she feels about certain things. But it was just enough that when that kind of character has to make any kind of decision, it's going to be shocking either way because they are struggling with it so much. You know, it's not like she was sitting here the whole time saying, I never do this. I never do this. I never do this. No, 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 no. And then all of a sudden she does it where it's surprising, but it's also not believable Mm -hmm. the way this story and this character is written. Anything is surprising, but everything is believable. Yeah. And, and I mean, again, like the character development in the high Republic has been just absolutely amazing. Um, I know sometimes, you know, they take a little garbage for phase one of just killing everybody, um, which (laughs) is is true. But you're in all the characters that you have, especially the ones that you spend a lot of time with, you have some great development and, and they're multifaceted characters. And so even though we don't get a lot of time with Chancellor Greylark, we do get the sense that she is a multifaceted thing. We do get a sense that she is she has some conflict over the sacrifices that she's had to make to be the chancellor. And it's not to say, you know, whether she was right or wrong, because everybody's got to make those kind of choices in that kind of position. But I, I just appreciated that the time was taken to develop that idea and that the, the development of that paid off. You know, and and that she became aware of the sacrifices that she had made and the impact that they had on um, on her son. And that she did a very Star Wars thing of giving up the power for her son, for the one that she Mm -hmm. she loved. And I don't want to say it's a a redemption because I don't think, you know, she was immoral or or had. I don't think she needed the redemption. Yeah. But it falls in that that kind of category of she really did find what was most important in that moment and, mm-hmm. and sacrificed whatever it took to, to make that happen. Yeah, no. And it's, it's cool too, because this is a character that we don't spend so much time with in the first person or anything. We have to use what other characters think and say about her and their reactions to when they're surprised that she makes certain decisions or does something. And that's why, Anything that she does would be shocking, too, because we don't know that thought process as intimately as we do other characters. Yeah. And we have to rely on it from second person point of view or really third person point of view. Um, but it's, it's a cool concept. And it's fun, though, too, because this story really is the one that ties the most into the Skywalker saga, not just for the plot reasons that I was talking about at the top of the episode. But for a lot of these thematic beats, like redeeming yourself and and sacrificing yourself for your son or for your loved ones. Yeah. And I mean, Star Wars repeats themes a lot. I mean, there's also only so many themes that you can have in a story worth reading, but... Um, I like to see that. So something else that we got a lot of in the High Republic, surprise, is the Jedi. So I want to kind of transition <laughs> to the Jedi. And 
Uh, let's start with Ada and Creighton because we got a lot of them um, in the Battle of Jeddah. Or yeah, mm-hmm. Battle of Jeddah. And yeah. uh, so it was nice to see those characters back and see them uh, get some some more development. And uh, how are you feeling about those characters? Like, did you feel compelled by their story or were they just kind of, uh, in my opinion, they were kind of there more so to be your eyes into what the path was actually doing as they snuck around the compound and stuff? Yeah, no, I did. I think it's in a way easier to connect with these characters than it is like Chris or Stellan in phase one because they're not the best of the best and you know it's not that they're bad yeah. people or bad no, no, Jedi. No, but they're not the the council members and stuff they're not, right they're not the poster children of the Jedi so I think it's actually really fun to see the way that these average Jedi kind of rip off of each other and and work together. I think that's a really compelling story and it's still able to drive it in terms of any kind of development. It's again, something I really like so much is the fact that it just picks up right after literally seconds after the battle of Jeddah. So by the time we see them and the, and they're in the thick of the story, yes, it's a few days later but it's not like it's months later or years later where they've had time to sit and think about what happened on Jeddah. And we should see these totally different characters who have learned and developed so much in the time. It really is easing right back into it. I thought that this story was the easiest transition from one story to another because it felt so real where it's like, yeah, this is what I would expect after listening to the, to the Battle of Jeddah for these characters to do. Um, but I think that they were, were perfectly fine characters. You know, it's not like I'm going to sit here and hope and pray and, and wish for more stories about these these ones. But... It's not a Solandra so situation. No, they're they're good. I have no issue with them. So you talked about how um, you know we kind of get to see these Jedi who are not the the tip top of the order, the Avar Chris's, the Stellan Geos, and uh, Elzar Man and stuff. And and that's a hundred percent right. And the ones that really like Ada and Creighton were like you said they were fine. I, for me personally, they felt more as we're going to take these two who, you know, in their natural direction, they would go after the path. Um, and so they would be the ones that would, it would make the most sense for them to sneak into the compound and things like that. So I think they did their job of, you know, like you said, giving us the, the lens of the Jedi, um, giving us some Jedi that could, uh, suffer the, the consequences of the leveler at certain points and really a lens into, um, the evils of the the path of the open hand at this point. But as far as the, you know, giving us a view, a, a new view of the Jedi, I think Oren and, and Gela actually did that a little better for me um, because those two just, they don't worry about titles or roles or anything yeah. like that. They just know they need each other. And so they just do it. And, and that's mm-hmm. kind of the Jedi I want to see. And it made me think about in phase one, how you know Stellan kind of takes Avar's spot and uh, gets promoted to the council, and you get uh, Avar that becomes the hero of Hetzel, and you get all of these things that 
give titles and roles to these characters that I think is is not necessarily the first domino to fall. You know, I think that it might be a little too uh, hyperbolic to say that, but it's it's the breeze has started that will blow over the dominoes of of the dogma of the Jedi. And I just loved that Orin and Gela didn't have that uh, in their relationship. I mean, I was legitimately peeved when when Oren died um because i really thought that character was a lot of fun and that was kind of where i really started to invest in gala and, and i felt like she um she actually she had actually had some plausible pain like the stuff with axel didn't really work great for me in convergence i didn't really see what she saw in him and kind of the same here so i just kind of had to accept that as a plot point but getting to see um you know, her actually have to suffer and see her reactions to that and stuff was really compelling to me. I will say, though, it was nice getting to see her also kind of wonder, what do I see in him? Like, I know he's a liar. I know he, he's a murderer. I know he's a traitor. But, so it was it was nice finally getting to see her start to question this. And because of that, start to question her own judgment. Um so no, it's it's definitely a story that's worked for me. And it's funny because I want to ask you, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me and my personal preference of thinking these villains are just so cool, right? Like I, I really enjoyed the Nile. Uh, I love the path of the open hand and, and this whole cult aspect. I really, really do. Which is why I think for phase two, I think of it almost more of the mother's story than I do the Jedi story, whereas phase one was very much the Jedi. But for me, phase two is the mother. Do you see phase two as being as rich and deep of a story about and for the Jedi order? Or do you think this is more about the Republic and these villains? Mm. That is a really complicated question. If I had to to pick one or the other, I think it would be more about the R- Republic and and the um, the path of the open hand. <sighs> saying it's about the mother is kind of complicated. That's kind of like saying the prequels are about Palpatine, and it's like, yeah, they are in a way. Uh, everything is kind of moved by his actions and his choices, but he's not the, you know, he's not the main character that you should be focused on. Um, he's not your point of view character or anything like that. So there's a lot of his story that we don't know. And there's a lot of the mother's story that we don't know. So I think it's more the phase one is definitely more focused on the Jedi. Um, Phase two, I would say is, is more focused on organizations and what develops certain levels of commitment to those organizations. Um, you know, whether it be the Jedi or the Republic or family or the path of the open hand or even uh, your your race or your, you know, nationality or, or you know, whatever they would call that in uh, in the Star Wars galaxy. But just that kind of idea of, of more so what do we identify as and, and what creates that identity. I think we got more of that in phase two, um, which I I mean, we got some in phase one, but in phase one, it was a lot more clearly defined, like who lined up where and why it was just kind of like, 
here's the Jedi and we accept them as as the heroes. And so you didn't get much that much identity struggle outside of of Elzar and then uh, Stellan in Fallen Star. Here, I think you have it for all of the characters in many different facets, um, which I think is why, kind of like you said, it, it goes a little bit deeper and, mm. and is a bit more impactful uh, in that aspect than phase one. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. And I think it also leaves it up to more of personal preference, both of do you like those more individual stories or, or do you even like that focus on things? Um, but it's, it's interesting. I think high Republic overall, this really continues the trend of there's kind of something for everyone here. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of one of my, you know, the reasons I was apprehensive about, you kind of have to invest in everything in phase two. Um, because even a little over halfway through path of vengeance, like you, you have to have read uh, Path of Deceit and Battle of Jedha and to really get an, an idea of what's going on. Um, so they're not as much standalone stories as, as Phase 1 was. So I kind of, in a way, like that structure because you, you don't necessarily have to remember as much. But using that structure also gives you a lot more to play with in terms of the emotional impact um, you can have with these stories. And, and so I think... We've talked, you know, ad nauseum about how how that works and how this has felt like a richer story than phase one. Um, and I think part of that is phase one was a lot of setup and stuff at the beginning of setting up these characters, setting up the Nile, all of these things. And phase two still had to do that, but with fewer characters and had, in a way, a longer form to be able to do that. So... Um, before we kind of bring it to a close, I want to talk about the close of the book. Um, because we have Enya, who is, uh, one of the, the Padawans who takes Oren's Kyber crystal, you know, after he dies, she takes it to the Kyber arch, but she keeps her master, uh, master Roy's to use on her own blade. And, and she makes a second lightsaber, one that's blue and one that's yellow. And, you, I'm, I'm kind of in a, a lightsaber mindset right now because I just went to Galaxy's Edge and built mine, and it was amazing. And uh, so is this the first time in canon that we've seen somebody, a Jedi in particular, use two different colored lightsabers? Um, I feel like it's not, and I can't remember where else. So it must be. But for some reason in my head, I'm trying to think if, you know what, maybe it could even just be like a mod on Fallen Order. Yeah. I mean, I guess technically Grievous uses green and blue lightsabers. I wouldn't really count that, but like a Jedi using Yeah, but like somebody um, who built the two. Like, because yeah. even though Ahsoka uses dual sabers, she always has the same color. It's like the she has same green color. and then white and then blue. Or, yeah. I, Yellow yeah. and then white. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I don't know why, for some reason, and I feel like this is going to keep me, keep me up on at night because I feel like you're right. But now I'm wondering what the hell I'm thinking of, or I'm like I can picture something. Yeah. So, anyways, if if you know of of something, let us know on Twitter at Clashing Sabers because I I would like to actually know the answer to that. Um, let's talk about Creighton and Yoda at the end talking about the Leveler, um, because God, this book is so packed. We didn't even talk about Yaddle's appearance. How freaking cool was that to see some more Yaddle action? 
it was you know between that and um oh goodness gracious what's the uh short the short stories on tales of the jedi Disney plus tales of the jedi i like that that we're starting to get some screen time and i would actually kind of chalk it up to uh grogu to be honest i think people are just more interested in the species now i i think that's a good point and I liked her and her interactions with uh, with Sippa, the the young youngling that she. She's kinda... a good a good character. Yaddle, like I like that they're not just throwing Yaddle away and putting her in when they can. It's it's consistently just a good character every time we meet her. Now, isn't that crazy? Like in Phantom Menace, we're like, wait, hold on, there's another one of Yoda species. I thought, I... yeah, and yeah. it became kind of a joke, and and even even kind of became a joke when uh, when Grogu came out. We're like, oh, what, what were Yoda and Yaddle doing? But now she's a, a serious character. So, uh, but speaking of Yoda, let's talk. Let's actually talk about uh, Creighton and Yoda at the end because they talk about the Leveler, which they call the Nameless. And uh, Yoda seems to to know about them, but doesn't reveal anything to Creighton. Yoda has come to the rescue at the end of Phase 1 and now Phase 2. And they also decide not to tell people about the Leveler, which is a very, like, uh, Attack of the Clones, don't tell them about the clone army and our inability to, to sense the Force. So, as a closing point, how did you feel uh, about that? It was plausible. Um, I can't think of any kind of better way to do it where it shows the power of of so many things that once again, we're seeing this younger self of him start to echo what we see in the Skywalker saga, right? Like he's able to sense these these other things. And it really shows the power of the leveler and the power of Yoda at the same time. Mm. That's a good point. That's a good point. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how how this turns out. So go ahead and give your your rating now that we've talked about the book, and I will give mine, and we'll get out of here. Um, I, I think I'm still going to give it a four out of five until I finish Path of Vengeance, because in talking about this and in talking about Phase One, it really is becoming very clear to me how much we really need the full story. Yeah. So will it make it better or worse? Who knows? But as a standalone, what a book. What a story. Yeah. It's gonna it's gonna stay uh four out of five for me. And uh again, like I, I'll echo what Lindsay said of we have a lot more coming. I think phase three is gonna bring it all together and there we're gonna get even higher scores on there and it's gonna be a lot of fun. So if you wanna keep up with us and hear about those reviews uh you can follow us on twitter like i mentioned at clashing savers same thing on instagram uh on our facebook page we are uh clashing savers star wars clashing savers uh is is the name of the facebook group so you can come join us over there and our over 400 members are are talking all the time um some of you who are are following on social see that i've been posting a lot more videos and stuff um, and asking some fun questions so make sure you are following us on all of our uh, social outlets to to be able to keep up with that. And if you like Star Wars and you like books and you like doing uh, the right and just and good thing, uh, join our Patreon and uh, help put some some 
books into classrooms across the country. Uh, we've got the new school year that'll be coming up very quickly. So we would love to uh, support teachers that you know. Uh, if you are listening, you have kids, uh, let us know who their, their teacher is going to be this year and we can hook them up with some Star Wars books. Uh, it doesn't matter what they teach, where they teach, whether they're a Star Wars fan or not. Um, kids love reading Star Wars books, and we want to support that. Uh, and we do that through our Patreon. So head over there. And uh, I guess until next time, I'll just say keep reading, keep writing. But whatever you do, don't burn the sacred text. All Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of the Clashing Sabers network and ClashingSabers.net. All licensed sounds and images are the property of their respective copyright holders and are used for informational and educational purposes only. For more information on our nonprofit or to nominate a teacher, go to ClashingSabers.net. For questions or inquiries, please email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. You're just going to walk away?